As an American, let me tell you about the one holiday in the U.S. that's more loved and loathed than any other. The one no one takes seriously, especially us Mexicans, even though we totally should. You know which one. We're talking all about Cinco de Mayo. Arriba, arriba. <laughs> I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is May 5th, 2021. Great white sharks spread along the California coast. Aviation officials warn of more jerk passengers than ever before. And Bill and Melinda Gates announce their divorce after 27 years of marriage. Gee, wonder who's going to be taking custody of Bing. My guest today will be Axios reporter Russell Contreras. He's going to talk about growing up in Houston and how a forgotten riot over the police death of a Mexican-American in 1978 turned Cinco de Mayo for him from farce into reflection. Put that in your corona, bruh. Let's get it out of the way. The 5th of May is not Mexican Independence Day. That's actually on September 16th. But for many of us, today is mostly about restaurant specials on nachos and margaritas. Too many white people wearing sombreros and fake mustaches. Normally, this is where we'd play you some sound of Cinco de Mayo's commercialization, especially from beer companies. But because our lawyer said no for copyright reasons, here's our own The Times, daily news from the LA Times rendition. It's based on real life. Have you heard of Cinco de Mayo? Cinco de what? Cinco de Mayo. You know, the Mexican holiday. That's loco. Let's celebrate with a Cinco de Trademark Beer Company. Cinco de cringe, am I right? Those are my colleagues, my jefa Denise Guerra and Clint Schaff, who's the head of LA Times Studio. So let's start over, shall we? To get us up to speed on what Cinco de Mayo is really about, we reached out to my longtime compa. Axios race and justice reporter Russell Contreras. We reached Russell in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but he's a Houston native, so go Dodgers. Hey, man, what's going on, Russell? How's it going, brother? Great to be with you. Oh, you know what's going on this damn Cinco de Mayo. What, what, what do you think about Cinco de Mayo? It's a complicated holiday for me. I don't go out and drink tequila on that day, probably because I drink it every other day, because <laughs> I don't uh, put on a sombrero that day. I don't happen to make Mexican food that one day of the year, probably because I make it other days. I do, however, reflect on uh, what the day means for us. And that moment in time when I was a four to five-year-old boy, when Houston erupted into riots, that's more important to me than what you see at a local restaurant and commercials. So, Russell, you're in New Mexico. How are you celebrating Cinco de Mayo and ABQ in Albuquerque? I'm not going to do anything differently, especially with COVID. I'm not going to a Mexican restaurant here in New Mexico. I would have to go to a new Mexican restaurant. And Cinco de Mayo just doesn't have that that same celebration for me. I, and I look, you know, in, in places like Albuquerque and Denver, where the cities will offer free ride-sharing rides for those who are celebrating Cinco de Mayo as they do St. Patrick's Day. And because of those dangers about drunk driving, I usually stay home. I'll probably drink an IPA. I'll probably watch a foreign film. But it's nothing, no different than any, and I'm going to do any other day um, where, I'm, where I have off. It does not have that same significance uh, to me, except explaining on social media the history of this day. 
Yeah, no one celebrates their taco salad day on Cinco de Mayo. Well, actually, it was Donald Trump in 2016. This is from the Associated Press. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump took to Twitter and Facebook with a picture of himself eating a taco bowl and the caption saying, Happy Cinco de Mayo. The best taco bowls are made in Trump Tower Grill. I love Hispanics. Yeah, most people don't realize that Cinco de Mayo actually commemorates something. It commemorates the Battle of Puebla. So let's just talk about that history. And so we got to go back to the past when it actually happens. 1862, U.S. is in its civil war, you know, having to deal with slavery. And France is trying to take over Mexico. Why the hell would France want Mexico? Well, Napoleon III wanted Mexico. This is the time we have to remember Mexico is still a young country. We're, we're talking like 50 years since the Grito, right? El Grito, in case you're not Mexican, is a rallying cry that happened to mark Mexico's War of Independence, which remember, it's September 16th, not Cinco de Mayo. And it is very vulnerable. Uh, and they had run up debt. And so European powers wanted their money. And so Napoleon III used this as an excuse to invade it and take it over and make it another colony. Uh, and so while this is going on, the Civil War is is getting heated up in the United States between pro-slavery forces and the U.S. government. It's not just the Union Army. It's the U.S. government. And so you have this international dispute that folks in California do not differentiate. They see this as the same struggle. And when the Battle of Puebla happens, it all meshes together uh, and looks in part of a big movement, even though these movements may not have been in conversation with each other. But for Latinos in California, it was the same. In case you're not Mexican, Puebla is a city in central Mexico, the fifth largest today with a population of 1.5 million. Really good food, too. It's always been strategic, so the French immediately wanted it while the U.S. was busy with its own civil war. Exactly. It was an indigenous army. They're at a spot and they see the approaching French forces. And you have to remember, they were intimidating. It was a sight that would scare everybody. This is the best army in the world. And Benito Juarez and his group of ragtag indigenous soldiers happened to defeat them in this battle. The indigenous army had outdated equipment, outdated armor, but they had a strategic location. They were on a hill as the invading French forces came. And if you take anything on military history, you know that's a major advantage. You shoot down while the French had to shoot up. Uh, and it reminded folks what was the possibility. You could be outnumbered and outgunned, but as long as you had the drive and you, you had luck and you had a strategic location, you could win. And I, I believe that those elements is what got people excited in California and later would be used by the Chicano movement that, yes, we are outnumbered, we are outgunned, but that does not mean we will lose. So, yeah, Mexico beats France in the Battle of Puebla, 1862. But the following year, the same battle happens. France wins. They take over Mexico. They occupy it for a couple of years. But then Mexico ends up beating the French once and for all. So meanwhile, in the American Southwest, which, of course, was just Mexico 15 years before all of this, they see that battle, that one battle as as a symbolism, as almost a hope of this is how we can resist a foreign imperial power. Yes, and the reason they did that is because this was an indigenous group fighting a Western European power. Uh, it would later become and develop into a David versus Goliath storyline. So we got former LA Times staffer and part-time actor Daryl Kunitomi to read this newspaper clipping about the Battle of Puebla from the San Francisco Examiner. This is from Cinco de Mayo, 1869. They find Mexican rejoicings. 
This being the seventh anniversary of the Battle of Puebla, in which the Mexicans defeated the French troops under Lorenzo. Which you can hear in that piece, the way it was written, that this was, there was jubilation in California. They saw themselves in this same fight as they did with abolitionists in the Americans. Its results convinced the Mexicans that if well commanded, they could successfully contend with the best disciplined European troops. This victory revived the drooping spirit of the nation and kept alive the determined resistance which ended in the expulsion of the invaders. General Zaragoza was one of the youngest officers of the Republic. In the evening, an oration and poem will be delivered at Turnverin Hall, and the celebration of the day will conclude by a ball at the same place. And we have to remember, at the time that the French invaded Mexico, California was a young state, and it was a state that had a number of immigrants. This was not just a place for Mexican and Mexican-Americans, but Chileans, folks from Central America and South America, they all came to California for the gold rush. And so there were very strong Spanish language newspapers at the time. When the Battle of Puebla happens on Cinco de Mayo, they equate that to the battle against slavery in the South. Because Napoleon III had made overtures to the South, it was very clear that some of the European powers wanted the South to win. Wow, so that bears worth repeating. The French wanted the South to win the Civil War. The people in California, these Latinos, saw themselves in kinship with the um, indigenous soldiers who won in the Battle of Puebla. They also saw it as an abolitionist fight. So it overtook this excitement in California. And this is the key thing, Gustavo. I've seen a lot of things on social media when we talk about black and brown relations um, especially from Wakosos, and we know who Wakosos are. Yeah, Wakosos, really quickly, it's a portmanteau of uh, being woke and a Mokoso, which is Mexican Spanish for a snot-nosed brat. Exactly. You'll go on social media, and whenever you, I see discussions about present-day police violence or people of color fighting against voting, I, I really see a simplistic view that Latinos are anti-black, that Mexican-Americans have anti-black racism embedded in their identity. And no question, there is a tinge of anti-blackness throughout Latino culture, throughout Latinos. We know them personally, Gustavo. I don't know the word for them, but I call them um, primos, right? They're in Texas. Uh, and But at the time, what this tells us about the Battle of Puebla and Cinco de Mayo is that there was an intellectual uh, allyship between Latinos and African-Americans in their quest for liberation, this would happen throughout American history at the same time in Texas. There's the Underground Railroad to Mexico. So Latinos, especially Mexican-Americans, saw themselves in kinship with African-Americans in their quest for freedom. And the Cinco de Mayo commemoration, as it began, is part of that legacy. Yeah, so at what point does Cinco de Mayo turn into this uh, commemoration of Mexican valor into a bunch of drinking of Drinko? It, it happens over time. I mean... For years, it's whenever Cinco de Mayo comes, it's celebrated as a Civil War history. You have people dress up in Civil War costumes and, and parade in, in uh, downtown San Francisco. But after the Mexican Revolution, when you have a new population come here to the United States, that connection to the Civil War is lost. And over time, Mexican-Americans readopt the holiday as a David versus Goliath event. And reminds the new, this this growing Mexican-American population who's experimenting discrimination across the Southwest and the Midwest. And as I mentioned, later on in 1978, when I'm four years old, a riot 
erupts in Houston on Cinco de Mayo over police violence and the killing of Joe Campos Torres, a Chicano Vietnam vet. Yeah, so what, what happened on that day then? Well, the year before, in 1977, there was a man by the name of Joe Campos Torres. He's a Vietnam vet. It was a fight at a bar. Police were called. He was arrested. As he was tra- being transported to what we thought would be a jail, the police officers beat him severely and then dump his body in the Buffalo Bayou, the long body of water that goes through Houston, Texas. He was found later. He died. And the city erupted in protest because this was another case of police officers beating Mexican-Americans. In this case, a severe case of it. So for about a year in investigations, it turns out a year later that authorities do not charge these guys. They don't indict them. And so these officers get off. Just ha- so happens that when this announcement comes out, it's a year later around Cinco de Mayo. Russell, where were you then? I'm at a park, Moody Park in Houston, Texas. This is north side. We're sitting there. There were revolutionary communist activists passing out flyers to all the revelers who were honoring Cinco de Mayo, saying it's time for them to revolt. One thing happens. People get liquored up, get excited. A fight breaks out. A cop car comes. They overturn it. The riots begin. It was, an, it, it, it was a combination of the euphoria around Cinco de Mayo and anger about police violence. And my neighborhood erupted in flames. And I have to tell you, I'm the same age of George Floyd. George Floyd lived across the city from me. When we go back to our townhouse in Houston, Texas, and you could look over the skyline and see my neighborhood in flames, a young George Floyd could look out and see Houston's north sides, the smoke coming from the area because of the violence. This incident would dramatically change how Houston police departments uh, handles its communities of color. There would be more diversity fi- hiring and everything. And it sparked on Cinco de Mayo. So every time Cinco de Mayo comes up in Houston, Texas, it cannot be escaped from the legacy of Joe Campos Torres and the Houston police. It is embedded in the city's history now. We'll have more after this break. The events of the riot in 1978, those the reasons for the riots are still around today. You had George Floyd, of course, but for Latinos, you had, uh, you know, Mario Gonzalez, who died after police put a knee to his neck in Northern California. You had Adam Toledo in Chicago. You had Andres Guardado down here in Southern California, shot in the back by L.A. Sheriff's deputies. Uh, it, it continues, yet for you now, because of that, you're always going to connect Cinco de Mayo with police brutality. It does, and I think anytime you're asking us to exercise some event that results in pride. You cannot escape where your conditions are in the United States. If you want to celebrate my Mexicanness in the United States, I have to put it in context about what we go through. And so it's not just uh, Mario Gonzalez. It's a number of folks that have been victims of police brutality. Look, when you see an officer putting the neck on an African-American, it is invokes images of things we know, slavery, Jim Crow, discrimination after the civil rights movement. Because we lack so much knowledge about Latino history, it doesn't invoke the same images. And when I say we, I'm not talking about you and I. You and I know. 
But it's not just Mario Gonzalez, it's Antonio Venezuela in Las Cruces. It's Frank Alvarado Jr. in Salinas. It's Adam Toledo in Chicago. It's Christopher Torres in Albuquerque. I can go on and on. In each of these cases, I see comments, and it's so frustrating on social media, where they say, why isn't this getting more attention? Why isn't the media writing about it? Well, if you Google any of these names, I've written about it. You've written about it. We're doing our job as journalists and writing about it and bringing attention. The readers aren't engaging with it. They're not making these connections. So we as a, as a society and as a culture and as journalists have to be vigilant and talk about these shootings and these cases of excessive force and put them in context. Because without it, we cannot engage in the same discourse that African-Americans are. And then we as Latinos, when we do celebrate our Mexicanos, when we celebrate Cinco de Mayo, sure, celebrate our Mexicanidad, but part of Mexicanidad in the United States is being violently repressed by not just the government, but also the police department. Exactly. And so in the case of Joe Campos Torres in Houston, you cannot escape this reality of celebrating this day without looking back to see how far we've come. It may not be what corporations and what the city officials want, but that's the reality. And now with Mario Gonzalez, it's going to come up every year. When Cinco de Mayo comes up, Mario's plight and what happened to him will be etched in Northern California community for a long time. So, Russell, throughout this conversation, you've told us about the radical history of Cinco de Mayo. But, you know, most people know Cinco de Drinco. They know it more, more like an American holiday. Even most Mexicans will be like, nah, 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 it's not real. They don't celebrate it in Mexico. So what does it mean that this day has been so removed from its radical roots? It dilutes what its meaning is. Now we know that by the 1980s, beer companies and companies in general, corporations, were trying to figure out how can we market and tap into this growing Hispanic Latino market? Cinco de Mayo seemed to be very easy for them. To them, all they say, it's a, it's a holiday around something Mexican. Let's do something to show that we care about this community. So beer companies would have commercials. You have restaurants that have uh, specials. And then more importantly, and I think this is a legacy that all of us, especially in L.A., can identify with. There's always a boxing match around the holiday. It's about a fight. Oscar De La Hoya would fight. Canelo would fight. Um, Julio Cesar Chavez would fight. Boxing promoters would see, oh, wait, there's a bunch of Mexicans getting together on this weekend. They're drinking. They may not even know why they're getting together. Let's give them another reason. Let's put together a big fight. So by the time you get to the 90s and the 2000s, the holiday has lost all all its political implications. It's only for the hardcore um, intellectuals, the nerds with glasses like you and I, <laughs> who know the history. But for most folks, it's just a day to get together to celebrate something Mexican. And then many wrongly believe it's Mexican Independence Day, which it's not. So can anyone nowadays celebrate Cinco de Mayo with a clean conscience? You know, I think that's a complicated question. I mean, it's it's like, can we celebrate Juneteenth, right? It, it, we should we should honor Juneteenth, but even in Houston, Juneteenth, the day that people in uh, enslaved people in Galveston found out they were emancipated, it's become an African American holiday where I come from in, in Houston. But many people now get together in Juneteenth for an excuse to drink too as well. So you can have all these holidays, but if you lose the meaning, I think you're just it's just a day off for you to gather and have some sort of social event. I think that it loses its meaning. You can say the same thing about July 4th, a Memorial Day. 
But for those, I, th I think what's needed is a, a re-education about what went on in Cinco de Mayo and its legacy, not just for people of Mexican origin, but for Latinos in general and for African-Americans. This day cannot be divorced from that if you look at its history. But it is divorced from that if all you think about is the latest fight, what kind of IPA you can get on sale, and what can be done just to relax and hang out at home. Uh, so can you put all that in a tequila bottle and uh, shoot it down? I think you can, but maybe in a, in a CBD hit if you need to drink after uh, the holiday and you could just go to sleep and just wait for Cinco de Mayo the next year. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks for talking to me. Absolutely. Good luck on the podcast. Russell Contreras is a race and justice reporter with Axios. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, The Times will bring you a story about the slow implosion of the Golden Globes and what this means for the movies you screen. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fenter Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, and our theme music is by Andrew Ipen. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and this madre. Gracias. Gracias.